2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I've admired Woody Allen's work for as long as I've loved movies. I've hosted parties where the only activity is just watching Broadway Danny Rose together. He's been making movies for 50 years now. Annie Hall, Manhattan, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days. They're some of the best movies ever made. They've got the funniest lines in modern cinema, and though he denies it, profound insights into psychology and the human condition. I've acted in three Woody Allen movies, and each one was a highlight of my career. And like just about everyone, I've followed his story. One part of the very private Woody Allen story is very public. In 1992, Woody and his ex-wife, Mia Farrow, were in the midst of a bruising custody dispute. Mia discovered that Woody had been having an affair with her 21-year-old daughter, while the dispute was raging, Mia told a psychologist that Dylan Farrow, her and Woody's seven-year-old daughter, accused her father of an incident of sexual abuse. There was an investigation in New York State and Connecticut, and no charges were filed. Woody Allen has always maintained his innocence. I've formed an opinion, and I've been public about that. My inclination is to trust those investigations. I've never claimed to be a journalist in my role as host of Here's the Thing, but now you know where I stand. Regardless of where you stand, I don't want to make the mistake of cutting the accuser or the accused out of the conversation. Woody Allen has a new autobiography out, Apropos of Nothing. It's a book that starts at the beginning. Allen was a Brooklyn high schooler who took the subway into Manhattan after school to write jokes for $40 a week. His jokes were a hit, and he met his comedy-writing mentors like Abe Burroughs and Danny Simon when he was still in his teens. The book shows that he hasn't lost his
3: touch. I've turned 84, and people for years, you know said to me, you should write down your life. You've been a nightclub comedian, a television writer, a radio writer. I've directed on stage. I've written for the theater. I've, you know, done films. I've played jazz. And they said, you must have a lot of stories that are are interesting or amusing or worthwhile or informative. And uh, and so I had nothing to do for a while. I had time off. So I wrote them out in the hopes that uh, maybe people would enjoy reading them or learn something. It's much more accurate than the things you see in the movies. When you see radio days or movies that are presumably autobiographical, All those little bits that are gathered from my life are greatly exaggerated and hopefully made funny. You're seeing enormous distortion for theatrical reasons and for entertainment reasons. And in your
2: films, you don't name names. Everything's anonymous. In Annie Hall, there's that wonderful moment when you go to the meeting with the entertainer. Johnny Hamer played the entertainer. Great to see you all out there. It's swell, and he's singing the song, and you're sitting there glazed over. And and not that you disparage people in the book, but you're much more direct. You say, I loved Hope, and Hope's movies were funnier than Jerry
3: Lewis. Yes, in a movie, you just want to entertain. That's all you I- want to really do. That's all I wanted to really do. In the book, you, you want to you know, tell the truth. Do I think this guy's funny? Do I think this movie's funny? Do I love this? And, and I can understand their interest because I work in the field, just like if I speak to an athlete, I want to know what do you think of this hitter? What do you think of this basketball player? What? You know, I want to hear it from someone who's in the field. And so to a certain degree I've I've included my feelings about uh, these things in the book so opinion, people yeah. might find it interesting.
2: The, the um you left out by the way in your list of jobs you've had you left out degenerate gambling.
3: Uh That's yeah I, mean. I was uh, someone who for no fun would work hard at poker and studied it and practiced and I got in to win. Everyone else was playing for pleasure. They were having a good time and enjoying their lives. I was sitting there, you know, like uh, sweating like a mole. God forbid I should make a mistake or make a wrong bet or do something. And uh, I did win money consistently over the years. Now, when you go back, I mean, the
2: the beginning of the book, because there's a volume of people who were familiar with your filmmaking, with your stand-up routines and so forth, going back to the earliest days of your career... But your childhood itself, for people who don't uh, know that part of your life, you said, listen, I'm wearing the glasses and you think I'm an intellectual and I'm not an intellectual.
3: And I could throw a football. I could catch a football.
2: I could play baseball.
3: You know, you know, Yeah, I would have rather been a baseball player. And I, I have fantasies that we would have had a much better life. It would have been more fun. But, um, I am perceived because of what I look like as a bookworm or a, or a shrink or an accountant or a, an intellectual because I have the glasses, but I was the opposite of an intellectual. I was strictly hung up on sports and comic books and movies, and never read a book till I was much older you know uh, and and I was very athletic when I was younger um, so i would have I would have preferred I don't think I would have been good enough to to be a major league baseball player. But it was quite good. I was always, you know, one of the, if not the first one chosen. I was quite good. When you get into the, the big leagues, it's a different story. But it would have made my father happy to spend his afternoons at the ballpark and me playing and, you know, uh, that's a fantasy I've always had. But it's a fantasy.
2: Well, I I want to talk about uh, uh, musicians. I mean, I spent an hour last night trying to get any CD recordings, not vinyl recordings. I surrendered to the fact that I have to go get some vinyl now, of uh, Gene Cedric. Uh Uh-huh. You talk about him coming to teach you. Yeah, Uh,
3: he was the clarinet player uh, with Fats Waller. I used to go and see him play jazz at uh, Child's Paramount in uh, Manhattan. There'd be a jazz concert every week, and he played, and I'd sit under... I never exchanged a word with him. I just watched him, and one day I called him up and asked him if he... I said, I'm that guy that sits in front of you every Sunday afternoon, and he recognized me, and I I asked if uh, could he... To help me, and he said, "Well, I would have to get two dollars now, even then that was a bargain, you know because this guy was a great yeah. musician, and he'd come in on the train from Harlem and come over the house and sit in my living room and try as hard as he could. There was a low ceiling that I had of capability, and he brought me a little closer to that low ceiling uh and you know I just it's it's not one of my my real talents. In fact, I don't really have any real talents except as a comedy writer. That's really the only talent I've had. Uh, you know to to be amusing has been my only gift. Uh, we were together
2: in Italy for the premiere of to Rome with love, and we were sitting on mm. a dais. I remember this vividly. And everyone would sit up and say, Woody, I have a question for Woody, you know, and they they wanted to direct all their questions to you, obviously. And when they did ask me a question, I talked about how your greatest gift is as a writer. And I saw you nod your head. There was a slight nod of your head as if the recognition of your writing is more important to you than anything.
3: Yeah, I only make the films because I write them. I've never filmed anybody else's script or had any inclination to uh, adapt something. I make the film because I write the film, and and I just feel I'm the only one who's really going to know how to mount it, so it's congruent with what I wrote. I see myself fundamentally as a writer. I direct out of necessity, and I try and do the best job that I can. Um, I, I think I've improved over the years. If you look at Take the Money and Run or Bananas when I first started, forgetting about whether you enjoyed the films or not, the, the technique has improved. I, I think I'm a much better filmmaker now. But, you know, that's just technical... Uh, you know, development uh, uh, that comes with years of working. I, it, I'm doing it only to get my story mounted in such a way that the audience can appreciate what I've written.
2: You tell the story about Gene Cedric and the lessons, then him coming to you. There's a parallel there with Abe Burroughs and you camping out briefly mm-hmm. in front of the Beresford to see Abe Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a component, you think, of your success,
3: is that you're ready to just show up and say, hey? I-, I wasn't ready. My mother was a pushy lady. I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. And she said, just go over to his house and ring his bell. And uh, I'm, I was such a naive kid, I thought, gee, I guess that's what I should do. and um, And it turned out that he was a a lovely guy. He had no connection with me whatsoever, except some vague, tenuous connection with a relative by marriage. I mean, it, it was really like 10 degrees of separation. But he could not have been warmer or nicer. And it was just one of many good breaks which I've had all my life relating to my career. I've had nothing but luck and good breaks and people helping me and people kind to me. And when I refer to my career as tremendous amount of luck, people say, oh, yeah, it can't just be luck. A huge amount of it is luck. Well, but one thing that was revealed in this book is this engine of a memory. I mean, you
2: remember everything, everybody. If I,
3: if I wanted to bore the reader of the book, I could pour out many more details about all that stuff but that's no achievement you you either remember or you don't i mean i didn't research the book i just sat down and started writing it from scratch and wrote it uh, you just remember things or you don't remember them and and i do but what i don't remember is when guys come up to me now and and they'll bark a line at me and I don't know what they're talking about. And they'll say, it's it's from your movie. Sure. Referring to some film I did 30, 40 years ago that I haven't seen since I made. I guess when you're a kid, your brain is so soft and absorbent. And, and you know, you remember those things. Tiger Lily is the first film you direct, correct? No, uh, that was an odd little aberrant project. Some guy called me and said... He bought a Japanese film. Would I dub it with Comic American? I don't count that as anything. I... I I was even going to sue to keep that from coming out uh, because I was—I thought it was such junk and, and uh, you know, it was successful. So my manager at the time said, shut up and go with the flow and don't make a fuss, and I didn't. So Take but, the Money uh, and Run is the first one you direct. Yeah, that's the first time I really wrote the picture and then directed it and got the picture that I was capable of doing to the best of my ability at that point in my life. And who...
2: Made the suggestion at that point that you direct. Whose idea was it that you direct? It was my
3: idea. I, I I came up with the idea. <laughs> I thought um, if I could uh, direct this, then uh, then I'm going to get what I want. I don't have to. And if I'm in it, I don't even have to deal with an actor. I can. I know what I want. I set the shot up, and then I walk around in front of the camera and do it. I do it the way I hear it, the way I wanted it expressed to the audience. And uh, people used to say, isn't it hard to write and direct? But it wasn't doubly hard. It was half as hard. Uh, Take the money and run. Who was the cinematographer,
2: do you recall, on that film? Lester Shaw. Lester Shaw. In the one experience I had directing... What was revealed very quickly was something I knew from the other films I made, which I wasn't that fascinated with cinematics. I wasn't that keen on lenses and which side of the line and where do we put the camera. And I almost Mm -hmm. fantasized, I fantasized almost that I would have a job I'd create where I was the director of just the acting. Did you find you had an affinity
3: for the camera? It wasn't an affinity. There was a common sense way my joke would look good, and I did it. Comedy doesn't require a a lot of fancy angles and a lot of flamboyant cinematography. You want it nice and simple. You want the audience to see it. You want it lit so they can see it and clear. So it was easy for me. I mean, it was no, some guy said to me at the time, one of the studio heads, you know, how do you feel being responsible for a million dollars? That was the budget, take the money and run. And and I I thought to myself, what what do you mean, how do I feel? I feel fine, Uh, this is a piece (laughs) of cake. You have to see the person put the gun down on the table if you want the joke to work. It's just not rocket science. Later on, I became more and more interested in cinematography and making the film work for you as well. But but always, if you don't have a story to tell, a good story, you're dead. And if you have a good story... You're way ahead of the game, even if you don't know what you're doing. When you're writing,
2: do you show anybody? Are there people that you trust who you want to, even if it's one person, is there anybody that you bounce your material off of and you want their opinion?
3: No, not really. I finish the script and I would always give it to Juliet Taylor to uh, give me some suggestions for casting and go. No, I did it all... uh, Uh, I I found that to be not a good thing to do because you get a million opinions and some of them are, are good and you should probably take them, but you don't know which ones the good ones are. And you get some that are meaningless and people don't understand. So you wouldn't bounce it off of Rollins, who would tell you whether the thing could get
2: made and raise the money. Would you ever bounce the script off of Rollins?
3: I wouldn't bounce the script off him, but I would ask him, you know, you think it's worth it for me to do this project? Never do you think this is funny or do you think... There were times I remember Jack Rollins didn't think it was a worthwhile project. Where did you first come in contact with him? Well, he was a manager around town. That was a legend. He had discovered Harry Belafonte when no one thought a black Calypso singer would be anything. And Jack was already saying he's going to be a movie star, not just a Calypso singer. He's going to be everything. And then suddenly, uh, two years after that, he went and brought Nichols and May to New York, and people said, oh, these two kids are intellectual, they're improvisational people from Chicago, they'll never make it, and one of them was Mike Nichols, the other was Elaine May. And uh, Jack just had a, a, a was a legend for having foresight into major talent, and people were saying you should really be handled by Jack, and 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 so I gave him my writing and said I'd be interested. He'd never handled a writer before, and he said he would handle me. And then I made the accidental mistake of saying, you know, sometimes I think of being a stand up comic myself. And from that moment on, he wouldn't let go. He said, absolutely, I think it's a great idea. We should pursue that and just wouldn't let me. I couldn't disabuse him of that notion. I was nervous. I was scared. I was only half serious when I said it, but he wouldn't let it go. And so I listened to him and he pushed me and I became a stand-up comedian and kept succeeding In spite of myself, I thought I was no good. I was nervous. I hated doing it. I didn't enjoy it. There was nothing about it that was positive for me, except when I get out on stage, I scored all the time from the first night on. And I said, why do I have any contribution to make as a comic? There's a million comics around. Why me? And he said, I think you have a unique contribution to make. And I listened to him because he had a very... A compelling personality not a dominating personality he was one of the only men i've ever met in my life that had true wisdom. He could make the hard decisions where there was no clear-cut right answer. He vibrated common sense and good thinking.
2: In a business that's short on both of those
3: things. Uh, Yeah, you know, it's hustling and backbiting and 90% of the people are fighting for their lives and scamming and trying hard to survive. He was not like that. He always advised me, don't ever think about the money. Think only about the project. So I never gave a moment's thought to money. It was a combination of my own innate feelings that money was not important and Jack's confirmation of that, which really solidified it. Um, When you say scored, I think that's kind of funny because, of course,
2: I'm from that generation where everybody knows word for word, uh, you know, the moose mingled. He scored.
3: Some guy was trying to sell him insurance for an hour and a half. They give out prizes for the best costume of the night. First prize goes to the Berkowitzes, a married couple dressed as a moose. The moose is furious. He and the Berkowitzes lock antlers in the living room. They knock each other unconscious. Now I figure here's my chance. I grab the moose, strap him to my fender and shoot back to the woods. But I got the Berkowitz's.
2: That's something that's seared in my memory, like Jonathan Winter's albums, Nichols and May albums, Bob and Ray. And interesting how you mentioned Jack Rollins, for people who don't know, he was a big part of your career. You mentioned him in the same kind of language I apply to Lorne Michaels. Lorne is someone who... There are very few people who are really smart in a way that applies to the business itself. You can be around, I've been around men and women running the studio, they're running the company, they're the head of the agency. And some of them are very erudite people, but not in any way that's going to translate into making movies or so forth. I mean, they they know how to put people together who make movies, you know. Jack Warner, Harry Cohn, these guys, some of them, uh, Mm. Zanuck. They didn't know shit about movie making, but what they knew mm-hmm. was how to get a hold of people and close the deal with people who did know about movie making and assemble them and put them mm-hmm. together. Um, now, when you make films, I mean, it's uh, they're not all created equal in terms of the kind of experience you have. I've made films mm-hmm. uh, where uh, we had a lot of fun and it was a joy. I mm. always separate out how well the film performed. I don't ever think about how successful it was. I think, oh, I had a good time. That was a good expenditure of my time. Uh, I want to start with actors and actresses. Who are, in your career of filmmaking, uh, just to pick a couple, because there's so many people to choose from, who are actors or actresses that you really enjoyed working with them? You thought, wow,
3: this has really been a pleasure to work with them. Well, Keaton was certainly, you know, I have a lot of fun working with her. And I've had fun working over the years with many of the actors and actresses I worked with. I had good times with Emma Stone. I had good times with Scarlett Johansson. I had um, very nice times with Naomi Watts. I've had generally good experiences over the years. Maureen Stapleton was a a lot of fun to work with, you know. I've been very lucky. I've made fifty movies, and I've never had any real conflicts or problems. The, the we've always had laughs. Elaine Stritch was a lot of laughs. You know, uh, I, I keep mentioning women here because <clears throat> so many of my films did feature women, and uh, and the ones that didn't, I was the guy uh, so frequently. Uh, I didn't work with a lot of famous men. I worked with some, but not a lot. I remember when we worked together, and you would call me Mr. Allen. I thought that was the funniest thing in the world, that anybody would refer to me so politely. No one ever called me Mr. Allen before or since.
2: Mr. Woody Allen. Even during the pandemic, Alan is the quintessential Manhattanite and has been ever since he formed an instant passion for the borough while visiting Times Square with his dad as a young child.
3: I'm quarantining in Manhattan. I go out with my wife for a walk in Central Park. New Yorkers have responded gallantly and sensibly. Once in a while you get a boob that doesn't, but for the most part they do, and because of it, The city's made tremendous progress, and we'll start to open up, you know, in the near future. I'm not one who wants it to open up prematurely because it's pointless. I mean, I'd love it to open up today fully, but, you know, just to have it open up and then take a big step backward with deaths and hospitalizations is pointless. But I, I, I never thought of moving out of it, uh, no, or or going to the country. Or, <laughs> you know. Hey, wait a second! Take it easy, pal. Hey, I'd rather easy, take my chances uh, in the streets. It's Manhattan. It'll always be Manhattan, and I'll always love it. It's, it's it is a ghost town, of course now, but uh, you know, but it'll come back. Listen, when nine eleven happened, uh, I went over to Europe like the next day, or I was scheduled to and I was on all the European news shows because I was a New Yorker, and they were saying, Mr. Allen, will New York ever be the same again? Or does this mean the death of humor in New York? I'm thinking, my God, you know, you look up after a a period of time, and New York will go on, and everyone will be at Madison Square Garden, and they'll be in the theaters. New York is much bigger than these... um, terrible things, and it's bigger than the pandemic. The rest of my
0: conversation with Woody Allen, coming up. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For someone who didn't get into making movies for a love of the craft, Alan makes some beautifully crafted movies. He credits his cinematographers for much of that.
3: My camera guys is like the 1927 Yankees. I mean, I worked 10 years with Gordon Willis and 13 years with Carlo De Palma. I worked with Vilmos Sigmund. I worked um, Sven Nykvist. Darius Kanji, amazing cameraman. I mean, one after the other. Now, Vittorio Storaro, I've done a number of pictures with. I mean, these are are the finest cameramen in the world. And, and you know, they make life easy on the set because they know what they're doing. Of course, they have different, very different methods. Someone like Gordon was very specific and very thought out, whereas Carlo De Palma was more like me. You know, you come in in the morning, and neither one of us would have any idea what scene we were even doing. And we, would you know, learn what the scene was, and we'd look around the set. We, you know, now it's already ten o'clock in the morning, and we finally figured out what we want to do. It was very laissez-faire and very loose, but we got it done. You know, it, it was just his way of working, and mine. Gordon was much stricter. He needed real structure and had to impose that structure on everyone. And I felt Gordon was a great artist and and uh, I would always defer to him. Did Gordon want shot sheets? No, we, ne- we never drew any pictures of anything or listed anything. Uh, I, I was very spontaneous that way. And Gordon agreed with that. But he wanted to sit with me for an afternoon always before we filmed and go over every scene in the picture, not every shot in the picture, but every scene, and generally decide how we were going to do it. Whereas with Carlo, we didn't even know what the scene was, even though they were going to shoot it. We, um, I, I, And I generally don't plan very much. Uh, Vittorio Storaro likes to plan things. She's very organized and likes to plan, and that's how he gets that beautiful look, other cameramen I've worked with uh, are more, you know, relaxed. as Sven Nykvist, who did a number of films for Bergman, you know, was used to working with no lights, practically, and quickly, and no rehearsals. No. I never rehearsed, so it worked out very well with him. I've never rehearsed. I rehearsed one film in my life, uh, Interiors, and I regretted rehearsing it. I never rehearsed anything before that, and certainly never anything after. When you make that leap... What's
2: the voice in your head that says, I'm ready to do this super serious film. I'm going to do a, a,
3: a Bergman-esque drama. I never wanted to be a comic filmmaker. I always wanted to be a serious filmmaker. I always wanted to make the films Bergman was making or the plays that Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams were doing. But my gift was in comedy, and I I couldn't get into things without getting In through comedy. So at the first possible opportunity to do something that was not comic, I did it and I didn't pull any punches. I was not making what passed for drama in commercial films. You know, I was doing a a real European style film you know, with all the (laughs) incompetence at my command. If it was up to me, if someone would have financed me, I probably would have made Interiors as the first movie I ever made and continued making these serious films that nobody would come to see or that I was not so good at making. So when you decide to do Interiors,
2: on the heels of uh, Annie Hall... Is that one of the junctures
3: where Rollins says to you, are you out of your mind? No, Rollins would have said, I don't remember having this conversation, but he would have said, you know, you have to go where you want to go artistically. You know, and over the years, I've had many, you know, offers to do Annie Hall too. And even now at this late stage, I'm, as I say, 84 and Keaton's uh, 10 years younger than me. Uh, we people have said, "Why don't you do the two characters from Annie Hall in the later part of their life and see what's happened to them?" But I, I never have any interest. Not that long ago, uh, Turner Classic Movies had a discussion of Annie Hall, and they wanted me to be on the panel to come back. I think with Marshall Brickman or maybe Keaton or yeah. I can't remember who, uh, but I didn't go. And I love Turner Classic Movies uh, enormously. But I I don't like to sit there and talk about the past. And so after Annie Hall, you know, I I didn't give a moment's thought except I wanted to do interiors, and I did it. But I'd like to make that picture over now. I think if I could do it now, I'd bring Maureen Stapleton in earlier and uh, I can make that picture better now. But uh, the boat sailed. Right. Um, I've got a couple more questions about movies
2: and about music and so forth. But as I mentioned to you, the people that I work with uh, have required me, uh, that is the word I am required by them to uh, open up this can of worms here. And I've got just some quick questions I want to ask you sure. about these other difficulties in your life. Uh, and and uh, one question that was submitted to me was, that uh, you wrote that the accusations about Dylan were so ludicrous that when it was leveled, you didn't give it a second thought. Uh, Why was it so ludicrous to you? You said ludicrous. I mean, you're a man of very specific words. Why was it ludicrous?
3: Well, the thought that anyone could take it seriously, why a a 57-year-old man in good standing who's never had any problem in his life at all would suddenly pick an odd day once in his life to do something in the midst of a hostile breakup. You know, I mean, the whole thing was so preposterous. I I thought any common sense person looking at it would would see it for what it was, the the cliched accusation that one party makes against the other, so common in custody cases.
2: Now you say you understand Mia's rage about your dating Soon-Yi, Do you think that you dating Soon-Yi makes the charges or accusations any
3: more credible? I I think uh, at the time, absolutely. But it doesn't make the charges more credible. But it certainly was, I was coming from a position, people were thinking, my God, this older person has seduced this young girl and he's taking advantage of her. You know, it looked awful. I understood that. I mean, I, I could understand that. But... You know, we've now been married for over 20 years and we have two girls in college and, you know, it was tabloid fodder at the time. And I understand why it would be. I mean, I'm not naive, but um but it had no bearing. The charges were something else. The charges were something that were investigated. They were not swept under the rug like many women's charges, legitimate charges that are swept under the rug. They were given meticulous investigation in Connecticut and also for uh, over a year in New York. It was given investigation by Yale, the top investigators of this kind of thing. And they said there was no thought that this child was ever bothered in any way. And I feel better that they investigated and I don't have to feel ever that oh this thing was side-pocketed I was a celebrity and they didn't follow up on it or anything they really followed up on it and they those were the conclusions they came to
2: and then then lastly uh uh this woman uh Casey Pascal who talked about your face down in the lap
3: of your daughter and she comes into a room look I was never alone With my daughter then, my son Moses will testify to this. I was always in a room with a lot of people, and they were all on the sofa and watching television. I may have sat on the floor and laid my head down on her lap for a second, but to infer anything sinister from that is crazy. The the only question
2: that I wanted to ask uh, uh, before all this uh, uh, other stuff was thrown into the mix was, I mean, here you are on this perch. How did you feel? How did you feel? Like, like were there ever moments where you thought, I'm going to leave the country and move to Paris and just get the hell away from everybody and everything and just oh, hide?
3: I, no, I've never felt that way. All, I always felt, you know, don't give any of that stuff. It's all rubbish. Don't waste a moment on it. Just work. And from the day that the false accusation was made, I worked. I did a million films. I wrote for the theater. I toured my jazz band. I played every week at the Carlisle Hotel. I, I, You know, if you just keep your nose to the grindstone and work, I hear the voice of Jack Rollins somewhere, just work. And I've just finished a film in Spain this summer called Rifkin's Festival, Who's that? in that? Wally Sean, a Spanish actress called Elena Anaya, Gina Gershon. It's a romantic comedy, and it came out better than I expected. When I saw the picture, finally, it was one of the pictures that I had affection for. So just three quick answers here on Woody Allen's
2: uh, filmmaking. These are my compilation. So number 1 was you don't pay
3: people competitive salaries. You don't pay people money. We don't have the money. I work on a comparatively low budget. These guys make films for 200 million, 150 million, you know, and I be making my films over the years for 17 million. So we can't afford to pay what the actors deserve to make you know it has to do with the unions if the union said you can't have an actor and pay him less than twenty thousand dollars um then we would have to do it but we pay the union minimum and and they do it when they're off you know if someone else offers them twenty million dollars to do a film they say goodbye to me and they do their film. And I understand that completely. But if they're not doing anything and they see the part and they love the part, they do it. Sometimes it even costs them money because they have to bring their family in from California because we can only pay a certain amount of luxury. Yeah.
2: Now, the other uh, myth is that even if the character is a bit uh, obtuse, you cast actors in roles because you believe the actor is like that in real life.
3: The, uh, the, the actor gives off that vibe. I don't, know, I don't know the actors. I'm not friendly with right, a lot of actors. Because right. the actor, without acting, just showing up in they the They present
2: room. themselves in that they way. They
3: present themselves in that way, yes. For instance, if you're doing a gangster film and you hire Tony Sirico... He it's all there. does not present himself like uh, the president of Harvard. You know, he presents himself like a street guy, and he doesn't have to act. He doesn't come in and do a mug's voice. He just comes in and talks as he is, and it's magical. In a world now where you're sitting
2: home and uh, you want that diversion, you want entertainment, I- I- I've learned through the pandemic, that what we do, uh, some more than others obviously, is so significant in people's lives. They need to take their mind off. They need a break, they need a break. And uh, there are streaming services now which are very popular where, uh, and they have the liberty, everything is sex and violence. I mean, when they write themselves into a corner, somebody steps up in with, a, with an automatic weapon and just mows everybody down in the room. Mm-hmm. And the Sir Galahad character takes his armor off and, gets on top of a stone slab with a woman and has at it with her. Sex and violence have become uh, like, like uh, assault in cooking.
3: And well, it passes for drama. It. When it's right, you know, if you're talking like Bonnie and Clyde or something, then it's fabulous. But when it's just the, the, the unskilled writer or unskilled director putting it in because he thinks it's intense then it's uh, embarrassing. Now, my last question for you is,
2: um, you write on a typewriter. You've never mastered computers. No. There uh, <laughs> was some degree of shame in that response, I must say. I'm glad to see that. Does nostalgia rule your life? I mean, everything in your films is beautiful old music. And uh, uh, does nostalgia just live inside you and determine... Most
3: of them are creative. I'm nostalgic, but that has nothing to do with the the gadget The, the gadgets has to do with my ADHD. I, I don't have the patience to master the things. I just can't get them, and I I'm not interested in in tape recorders and you know cell phones. I have one, and I can answer the phone and and get it you know dial a number, but I can't do all the things. I I don't do apps and zooms and all I don't even. Know know. know what they are in some sense Uh, but the nostalgic part of me is a different question completely and I do have a great reverence for the past. Uh, I get sucked up, Camus said it was a trap and I fall into that trap very frequently, get sucked up into old music and old films and I don't know why. It's not that my childhood was so idyllic that I want to relive it. I don't. But the the music is very beautiful. In your films, I'm assuming that you are
2: the one that chooses the particular songs themselves. You don't have a music supervisor that's making suggestions. No, no.
3: And it's a very simple thing. We edit the film. I work with the editor. We edit. It's finished. And I simply go into the other room and take some vinyl and bring it into this room, and I put the record down and look at it, and, you know, that's not good, and I put the next record down, and then voila, it's uh, sensational. Then the only uh, issue is clearances. Yeah, yeah, and but, but, you know, we do have a music budget. Uh, sometimes uh, Helen, our line producer, will say to me, can you pick a different song because they want, you know, $20,000. Right. But I want to say to you that
2: um, what I really wanted to say to you was you get back out there and you keep making movies because you are really just uh, such an important part of people's lives. You have made life worth living. Well, I I think this
3: is just you being very gracious, wrapping up your show and very nice of you to say that. But I can't imagine that I've had any impact except to provide some Saturday nights in the movie house uh, where you could take your date.
2: Global box office returns are much reduced in the age of coronavirus. But Woody Allen's newest release, A Rainy Day in New York, dominated them for a time last month. That's true even though Amazon dropped plans for domestic distribution after Dylan's claims started getting more attention. Woody did give me some hope that Americans won't have to cross an ocean to see it.
3: People have been talking to me about streaming it and I've never done that before, but because of the pandemic, and people are indoors and not going to be going to the movie houses for God knows how long, maybe we will make a deal and you'll be able to see it on, uh, on one of the streaming channels.
2: The word is platforms, Woody, and I do hope you make that deal. Alan's revealing memoir is called Apropos of Nothing, and it covers everything from the accusations of Dylan Farrow to his movies, his mentors, and his marriages. The book is out now from Arcade. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.